All right, good morning, everybody. Let's try that one more time. That was definitely better than the first service, first attempt, but not better than the first service, second attempt. So good morning, everybody. You know how to make a guy feel welcome. <laughs> well, my name is Jeremy Hamasu. It's good to be here with you guys today. I suppose that I am here because um, about 20 years ago, a family moved, in, moved on to our sleepy little street called Driftwood Place. And, uh, and Driftwood Place had no idea what was about to hit it. Uh, they, uh, there was a lot of them, and I quickly learned three, actually, I guess four things. Number one, there was a lot of them. Number two, um, they were very loud. <laughs> Number three, um, they, uh, when they would get dirty outside and, and go in to try to go in their house, their parents would make them strip down and they just spray them down with the hose. And then number four, the, 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 the rumor on the street was they were all born on the living room floor. So uh, there's a couple other things. They're from Ashland, and we all loved them. So, um, and when the Brossers moved into the house literally next door to us, the Hamasus and the Brossers, it was, it was, it was good. And, and it, I had no idea how long the friendships would last, and uh, life keeps weaving us together in and out. And, uh, and so I, I'm good friends with Zav, and he asked me to, to come here and share with you guys today. Um, Zav and I actually share a bond that uh, I don't think Zav shares with uh, many other people in this world. We are actually uh, real, true blood brothers. And you're saying, what? How, how does that work out? Well, when we were little kids, I was probably 10 years old. Xavier was eight or nine. And uh, we were outside playing. And I was on my skateboard. And skateboards back then had real small wheels. And there was a plum tree that was right on the border of our house and their house. And it would, the plums would fall. And then the seeds would be left there. And I was skateboarding. And I was pushing. And I, my wheel ran up against one of those seeds. And I just flew off the front, landed on my knees, skinned my knee all up, and I, as I sat there, I was bleeding, and, and Zav walks up to me, and he goes, Jeremy, and I was like, yeah, he's like, you know, we could be blood brothers, and I was like, <laughs> it's like, blood brothers, like, what, what are you talking about, Zav, and he's like, no, we could be blood brothers, and all I have to do is taste your blood, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I was like, taste my blood? And he's like, yeah. And, uh, and so I'm like thinking about this and I was like, Zav, I would be crazy to do anything except for become blood brothers with you today. So he walked right up to me as I sat there next to my skateboard and he just went right up to my knee and just, <laughs> it was, uh, and I forgot about it, actually. And then we went to high school together. I was a little older, and then he came into high school, and he was telling people, like, yeah, Jeremy and I, man, we're blood brothers. And I'm like, we are blood brothers, aren't we? He's like, yeah. And so, uh, so yeah, what does that have to do with anything? Nothing. <laughs> I guess it's just to say good morning, uh, introduce you to myself, and I'd say I'm happy to be here. We're going to take our scripture today. Um, you're saying, why did you tell that story? That is a miserable little story. <laughs> uh, we're going to take our scripture from Luke chapter 15 today. Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, would you open them up or your app, or I think they're going to throw them on the screen behind me if, if you're just feeling like sitting there and taking in a little bit more today. Luke chapter 15, verse 11 
The story is often referred to the story of the prodigal son, but uh, my prayer for us today is that we would view this story with new eyes, and, uh, and we'll read, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into the sermon. Jesus was talking to a group of Pharisees and tax collectors, and, and if you were a Jew in that time, in that day, you would view the tax collectors as really, 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 really bad, and they viewed the Pharisees, the religious people, as really, 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 really good. And uh, Jesus is going to speak something to both of them here. And uh, so we pick it up in verse 11. And he, Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose and hit the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is, fa- and is found and they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked, what do these things mean? And he said to him, the servant did, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and treated him, but he answered his father, look, these many days I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends But when the son of yours came and has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he, the father, said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your younger brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Father, I just wonder... As we are here today, how many of us are younger brothers who have run from you and need to come home, but also how many of us are older brothers frustrated with doing the right thing all the time and seemingly not getting ahead? Lord, I pray that you would help us to view this scripture through the lens of your good news, your gospel, and understand the implications for us here today. Um, 
you know each individual here, and I pray that you would speak to them, uh, not necessarily what they want to hear, but what they need to hear, myself included. So we pray that you would have your way and that you, Jesus, would be on display in this time. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. A couple years ago, I picked up a book. It's, uh, it was shorter than a full-length novel and longer than a short story, so they call it a novella, uh, Just My Size. Um, and uh, it was written by an author named Jim Harrison, who was an American author, and he wrote the book in the 1970s. And I, just to let you know, I'm going to spoil the entire book for you, but you've had 50 years to read it, so if you haven't read it by now, I don't feel too guilty. And uh, the book was called Legends of the Fall, and the story chronicles three but really two brothers. Um, and at the beginning of the story, you, you, you get the strong sense that these boys had a strong bond uh, with each other stronger than a typical sibling bond. It's much like if you've ever met a twin, you know, and the twins or the two twins are together. They've eaten every meal together. They've gone to uh, school together. They've had every class together. They've uh, slept in the same room their entire life. And then at some point, one twin moves away and you see the bond they have because it's like their own identity is stripped away from them. They don't know quite who they are as an individual. They only know themselves together. And it's the same type of bond in this story. Um, and there's three brothers. So much, so tight is their bond that when the youngest brother, Samuel, decides to go off to war, this was in the 19, I, I don't know how to say it, the 19 teens. I told the first service I'm a history major. I should know these things. But it was, it was in the 19 teens. And, and uh, when the youngest brother, Samuel, decides to go off to fight in the Great War, the other brothers, the two older ones, enlist as well. But the reason they do that is not to uh, fight for the cause. They, their sole purpose is to try to make sure that Samuel makes it through the war alive and intact. But when Samuel finds himself on the front lines, um, hit with the nasty mustard gas that they used in World War I. He's blinded. He stumbles into a uh, barbed wire fence and finds himself an easy target for the enemy, and he dies there. And it's when he dies that the story really begins because the two older brothers respond to Samuel's death in two very different ways. Tristan, the middle brother, gets angry and on that day, he finds that Samuel has died. He curses God and goes on to live a life that's completely driven by his own selfish interests. He's only motivated by his feelings and his passions. And so he abandons the army. He goes back home. He finds the girl that Samuel was engaged to when he enlisted into the war, and he marries her. But it's only a few years later that he's disinterested with the relationship there. He leaves the girl, doesn't tell her where he's going. He takes off to follow his adventures and the things that he wants to follow off or follow after. And it's years later that he finally, years later after this girl has waited for him, that he finally sends a little note to her that says, marry another, our love is dead. And so... He goes on, a few years later, he comes back to find that this girl has remarried, and he has an affair with her, but then takes off again, finds another woman, marries her, he gets into bootlegging as it's during the time of the prohibition, and uh, it's his bootlegging ways that eventually lead to this new wife being killed, shot uh, with a bullet that was meant for him, and she dies. 
And we find that Tristan, this middle brother, at the end of the book is just as lost, just as confused, just as lonely as the day he was when Samuel died. But then there's the older brother, Alfred. And Alfred takes a very different path. Alfred does everything you're supposed to do. He stays in the military. He works his way up the ranks. I believe he becomes a captain. He, he is well-respected by those around him. He gets wounded in the war, and he walks with a limp, but he carries that limp as a badge of honor of the sacrifice that he laid down for his country. When he leaves, he comes back to find the woman that Samuel was engaged to, Tristan had abandoned, and she's lost and confused and heartbroken, and he takes her under his wing, and he marries her, and he accommodates her, and he does all the things that, uh, that a good man should do. He goes on to get involved in politics. He works his way up through the ranks. He becomes a U.S. senator, and he's well-respected by all the members of Congress. He's writing laws, bills, all the rest, and he... Uh, even when Tristan and his wife have an affair, he chooses to love them both still. But it's interesting because you come to the end of the book and you find that Alfred, just like Tristan, though Alfred has followed all of the rules, he's done everything he's supposed to do, he is just as lost, just as confused as the day he was when Samuel died. And it's in this book that Jim Harrison is really asking us an important question. Is there any gain in building your identity, building who you are? Is there any gain in building your identity of a moral lifestyle as opposed to a selfish one? And the answer, I believe, for us here today, ultimately, no. What? Ultimately, no. Why do you say that? Well, you see, Jesus touched on this subject a couple thousand years earlier when Jesus told his story of two brothers. It's the story we just read right here and right now. And a lot of ado is made about the younger brother, as should be. You see, this younger brother is driven by his passions, driven by his feelings. He's not very considerate of other people, and he does some, some pretty nasty things. He goes to his dad, and he says, Dad, I want your inheritance, or I want my inheritance. I don't want to have a relationship with you. I don't care about the family. All I want is what I'm going to get from you, and I don't feel like waiting till you die to get it. Give it to me now. And to say this in this time, in this day and age, he's essentially saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me what's mine. I want it. I mean, think about that. In a day and age where literally kids and young people are crying for a father in their life, this kid says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me what I want. The dad acquiesces, gives him all his inheritance, and this kid takes it, goes to a different country, and he blows it on what the Bible calls reckless living. The older brother gives us a little more insight into what he did with the money when he says, Dad, he blew all his money on prostitutes, on a sexually deviant lifestyle. And as he makes his way down that reckless lifestyle, he finds himself at the bitter end where he has nothing left. He takes a job working on a farm, and when he's sitting there finding himself feeding pigs these pods of food, he thinks to himself, I would eat these pods of food, but nobody's giving me anything. And even the servants in my dad's house eat better than I do. Maybe I'll just go back, throw myself at the mercy of my father and just ask him for a job so I can have just enough to get by. 
And I love this part of the story because he turns around, he makes his way home, and the Bible says the father, it's almost like the father has been watching for him. He sees him from a far distance, and in those days, Middle Eastern men were not supposed to run, but he takes off running to the son, and the son gives his pitch, dad, I'm not worthy to be called your son, but the dad says, bring out the ring, get him some shoes, get my finest robe and put it on him so everybody knows that this is my son who was lost and is found. Get the calf, slaughter it. Play the music. Tell the friends. Tell the family. It's time to celebrate. He was dead, but now he's alive. Let's celebrate. And then there's the older son working in the fields. And he looks and he hears what's going on. And he, he grabs the servant. Hey, 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 hey. What's going on up there? He says, your, your brother, he's been gone. He's returned. He's back, and your dad is throwing a celebration for him. And what does he say? Oh, I got to go see what my brother's doing. No, he throws a pity party. <laughs> and he refuses to go up there, but I love what happens next because the father, just like he ran to meet the younger son, the father leaves the celebration, and he finds the older brother. He says, son, what's going on? And then the, the older son, you you know, you read it. Dad, all these years I've done everything I'm supposed to do. I've followed your commands. I've kept your rules. I didn't run off with your money. I didn't blow my inheritance. I have done everything you've asked, and you've never given me a coat. You've never given me the ring. You've never slaughtered a calf so I can hang out and celebrate with my friends. You've never done any of this for me. And I look at the story, and I notice something. It's not just one prodigal son, one dad, two brothers. Both of them just want what the father has, and neither are interested in a relationship with him. One goes about it by being really, 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 really bad, and the other goes about it by being really, 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 really good. And what do they need? What are they missing? Well, it's oozing throughout the story, the moral of the story, the silver lining, the redeeming factor, don't you see? It's the Father's unconditional, loving acceptance of his boys, no matter what they do. And the boys miss it. I just wonder if there are not people here today who have lived a very Tristan-like lifestyle a very younger brother-like lifestyle. And your entire life, the filter through which you've seen everything is what's in it for me. And you've never done anything or learned to do much without finding out what can I get from this. And you've torn through relationships one after another after another because you've been driven wholly and solely by your feelings and you hurt people and there's a trail of wreckage behind you and, and your family relationships have been strained. Why? Because when you live your life through a of, of, of filter of selfishness, you can't help but put your family in a situation where they're forced to make a decision. Do I show him tough? love and kick them out? Or do I risk enabling the behavior again and give them another chance? And every time they've been tough on you, you've let them feel it, the guilt, and you've ridden that and driven that home. How dare you kick me out? And you've never worked for an employer that you didn't take advantage of. And every friendship you've ever, has, or you've ever had has been ran through the filter of what can they offer me. You've never had a friendship with somebody that had nothing to offer you. 
selfish. But the word of the Lord for you, if that's you here today, is this. If you will only turn around, the Father is willing, waiting, watching, and wanting to run to you, to give you another chance, to accept you, to bring you in. And it might be years before you get your mental health back, and it might be years before you know what a healthy relationship looks like, and it might be years before you can start to see things through a filter other than yourself, but even still, the Father is waiting and willing to run to you. Will you deny so great a gift? And I want to unpack that just a little bit because if I'm here and I'm sitting in those chairs and I know that that's me and you say, turn around, that makes no sense to me at all. What does that mean? It's just like the younger brother. It means you realize that you've run your course. You've done everything the way that you thought it should be done. And whether that's physically or mentally or emotionally or spiritually, you found yourself dining with the pigs and you're tired, and you're ready to just turn around and say, whatever the Father wants, even if I'm just a servant that gets no recognition, I'm willing to try it his way. And if that's you, I would find somebody during the second session of music, somebody back, there is a prayer team ready to meet with you, and I would just spill your guts out to them and let them help you because it's like Rio was saying, if, if you find yourself and you keep yourself alone and there's no community, it's really hard to make it. It's not that you can't make it, but it's really hard. But if you choose to surround yourself with people that might be able to help you and be patient with them because they probably won't be as good at helping you as you want them to be, but be patient with them and keep showing up and keep trying, the Lord will show you the way. It might be light for one step, but he'll always give you light for one more. Will you so deny so great a gift? But I also know in a church, there's a far greater tendency for there to be a lot of Alfreds in here, a lot of older brothers. What do you mean? Well, I see it everywhere in our culture. And the older brothers, the Alfreds of the world, they view their life through a scale, a balance. And they think, if, if, if the, the end product of my life tips in the favor of good, then I'm good. In other words, if I do good things, then God will accept me. And if I keep doing good things, man, well, I've lived a real good life. I've contributed to the community. I've left the organizations I've been a part of a little better. I've been kind to people. And God's a good God, and God's a reasonable God. And a reasonable God wouldn't take a good person and refuse to accept him, would he? And I don't know really what happens to all the mass murderers of the world that tip in the favor of bad, but I don't really want to be a part of that. So, so I, I just got to make sure to do good things and, and your relationship with God, you feel good about it when you've you know, donated money or done this or done that. But then when you, when you screw up and you know you screwed up, you, you feel real bad. Man, does God really, is he going to take time for me? And that's everywhere. It's the reason when you go to funerals today, people go, oh man, he lived a good life. He, he, he had a lot of redeeming factors about him or her. And, and I can't wait to see them someday. But there's, I want to unpack that just a little bit. If you say that when I give a, live a good life and do good things, God will accept me, you're also saying if I don't do good things, God won't accept me. 
And here's the problem with that. All throughout the Bible is story of really, 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 really dumb people doing really, really, really dumb things. And God continues time and time again to use those foolish people despite them. And on top of that, if you say, if I don't do good things, God won't accept me. What's driving you to do good things? I mean, think about that for a second. Whether you've articulated it in your mind or not, pride or selfishness and fear, oh, I, I, I don't want to get cast away. I'm going I'm to do good things. I'm going to show up to church on Sunday. I'm going to raise my kids to be like real nice contributing members of society. And then what happens is that begins to transition its way into pride. Why? Because when you come to the end of your life and, and you've done all these great things and you think as long as I don't... Go kill somebody. The, the, the scale is tipped all the way in this direction. As long as I don't do anything real bad, then God, you owe me. What do you mean? I've done everything I should do. I've kept all the rules. I've followed. I went to church every Sunday. I only missed one a year. I gave myself that one allowance. So God, I've held up my end of the deal. Now it's time to, for you to hold up your end of the deal. You owe me this. The problem is God doesn't owe you anything. <laughs> And I look and I see and I realize even my good works don't get me there. It's the reason Tim Keller, who's one of my favorite preachers, he says, if you think your good works are good works, they're no longer good works. Why? Because they're done in an effort to self-justify. And this is why C.S. Lewis, when he was an, as an atheist, before he wrote Chronicles of Narnia, he, he looked at these things and, and he thought, man, Christianity must be true. Why? Because who thinks of these things? Every other religion, it views the world and the scale tipping in the balance. But Christianity, nobody thinks of that stuff. And this is why I stand before you today and I say, the story, it's not so much your dirty sins that I'm worried about. It's your damnable good deeds. So what do you need? You need to receive the unconditional loving acceptance of a father who is watching, willing, waiting, and wanting to run to meet you. See, even if you disagree with everything that I've said today, one thing I think we can all agree on is this world has some problems. People are flawed and foolish, and I don't mean people out there. I even mean people in here, even people on the stage, and if we were to walk our entire lives with a recorder around our neck that recorded every standard that we held everybody else to, we would not be able to meet our own standards. It's what the Bible calls sin, and people do really unjust things to other people they do unfair and ungood things to the Lord. They do unfair and unjust things to themselves. We have a sin problem. But here's the good news. A couple thousand years ago, God came to the earth in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, and he lived a really, really, really untristan-like life. He never looked at people as a way to get ahead. He didn't analyze that social situation and think, maybe if I can play this angle, I can come out on top and get what I want. He never uh, allowed his feelings to drive him to hurt people and do uh, unright, ungood, unjust things. He, he lived completely untristan-like, but the beautiful thing is, it's not he didn't just refuse to do bad things. He didn't let that drive him to become an Alfred. He didn't let that drive him to become an older brother. 
He, he, he never thought, man, if I do these goods, I've healed a lot of people over there. You saw that, and, and you know, I took time for that lady over there, and you know, I'm just racking up my points with God. No. He had this relationship with the Father in heaven where he was so in love, he just allowed that relationship to drive him to do things. It was a natural manifestation. It wasn't earning points. And he walked this planet, think of this, God in the form of man gives up everything and he walks the planet for 33 years as a poor carpenter and then he dies a grisly sinner's death. Why? Because he knows we have a sin problem here. He knows that we don't even measure up to our own standards. And here's the thing, a just God must deal with injustice in the world. So what's he gonna do? And he came up with a solution and he said, I will take the penalty and the payment for all the stupid things that all of the world does. I'm gonna take the penalty and the payment for Jeremy. I'm gonna take the penalty and the payment for you and I'm gonna strip it from you and I'm gonna pin it to myself. Jesus, the sins were pinned to him on the cross and he took it all. And that's the beautiful thing I, loved, I love about the doctrine of justification. It says a couple things. It says, one, the foolish things that I've done, the sinful things that I've done, the unjust things that I've done in my life, the standards I've refused to live up to, he takes all those and he pins it to Christ on the cross. And a perfect, spotless God takes it all. But it also says another thing. It says all the righteousness and honors that Christ earned living that perfect and spotless life are stripped from him and pinned to me. And now I walk in the room and I know the reality of who I am, but I step into the room and everybody stands to attention. And I am given access to a most high father who loves me. I can have relationship with God. I can walk in this day by day. It's a beautiful thing. It's a great trade for us, not for him. And I have these honors. And it's interesting because when I realize this, when I dwell on it, when I receive this unconditional loving acceptance of a father, couple things happen. Number one, Tristan goes into remission. What do you mean? It's the same principle as I can't sit in a ta- at a table with, you know, Mother Teresa and Martin Luther King and Gandhi and sit there and talk about my followers on Instagram and how popular I am or I am not. <laughs> uh, when I am in the presence of someone who's made such great sacrifices, uh, I can't help but notice myself being called to a higher level. I can't help it. And when I realized that Christ took all these things from me and stripped them from me and then pinned his honors upon me, how can I go about living a Tristan-like life trying to take advantage of them when he never took advantage of me? How can I continue on? But there's a second thing that happens too. Alfred goes into remission too. The older brother goes into remission too. What do you mean? I have a, uh, a good buddy, a great buddy. He's my best friend, and he lives in the house right next door to me, which is awesome. And uh, we spend a lot of time together, and I always tell him, uh, his name's Ben, and I always tell him, Ben, you were just made for the military. And that's not because he has, like, real buff or he has a chin line or anything like that. It's because when everything's going chaotic, 
While I'm running for the back door, Ben stands to attention to try to figure out what he needs to do and what needs to happen. You know, he was telling me he went down to uh, California and he was out on the beach and, and he was just lounging in the beach and, and, and then he just noticed something, you know, and he kind of perked up and he saw somebody out in the water and something wasn't right. So he gets up and he just runs to this random person and he notices they're all blue and they're collapsed. And so he grabs them out of the water. He drags them to the beach. He doesn't know CPR, but he begins to mobilize people. Hey, we need, is there a nurse? here can any and he goes and he saves the guy's life he was having a heart attack and he said he's just that kind of a guy and uh while I'm sitting there on the beach like what is going on here you know he's the one that jumps to attention and I want to uh I want to you to imagine with me that we're running around town hanging out doing whatever we do and I got to stop by the bank and so he comes with me and we walk into the bank and he hangs out by the back doors, you know, and, and I go to the front teller, and I'm talking to the teller there, and, and as we're doing our transactions, uh, we hear those dreaded two words, everybody down, and I look back, and lo and behold, there's a, a bank robber or somebody with bad intentions and weapons and guns and all the rest, and, and we hear this, and, 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 and everybody kind of like freezes, and Everybody's trying to decide what they should do and how they should go about this situation. And while he's yelling his demands and telling us exactly how we should go about uh, our business right then and there, we see somebody, another teller, a couple booths down, and she reaches for that panic button, and she pushes it. But unfortunately, the bank robber sees what's going on, and now the, uh, the, the, the hysteria just goes through the roof, and everybody's panicking, and somebody lets out a scream, and then, and then you hear bullets flying, and everything is going bad, and, and now it's every man for themselves. And so I'm sitting there at the front teller, and I turn around, and I say, think, I got to get out of here, man. I gotta go, and, and I kind of start running, and I kind of try to jump a table, and I trip, and I fall, and I roll on the ground, and I'm clumsy, and I'm dodging chairs trying to get out of there, and as I'm running for the back area, the gunman looks, and he sees me running, and he locks eyes on me, and he begins to raise his gun, and I'm just trying to get out of there, and there's a window, there's no door, and so I just dive for the window, and right then he fires off two shots, and what I didn't know was Ben was in the back, and as he saw all this playing out, and as he saw me fumbling over the table and trying to get around chairs, he realized Jeremy's not going to make it. And so he takes off from by the doors and he starts running toward me. And the gunman shoots two rounds and he dives and he takes the two bullets in the chest and he dies there. And I crash through the window and I come to freedom. Now, two hours later, KTVL shows up, Channel 12 News, and Brian Morton's got the microphone and he's talking to me and he goes, Jeremy, unbelievable. He goes, tell us what happened from your perspective. And what if I talked to Brian Morton and I said, Brian, you, you just wouldn't even believe it, you know? I've never been a very athletic guy, but when I saw what was going on, I realized something needed to be done right then and there. And so I got in my track stance and I took off from up by the teller all the way on the other side of the bank and I hurdled that table there. And, and, and then I kind of tripped, but I rolled into a military roll and jumped right back up and I dodged and spun around the chairs and then there wasn't even do a door there, Brian. And the gunman was firing off and so I just dove and I just, you know, did a, a spin through the window, crashed till my freedom and I ran. Gunman didn't even hit me. 
what would everybody who was there watching what happened say about me? What would Ben's wife say? How dare you? How dare you disrespect the great sacrifice that was made so that you can walk in freedom? How dare you disrespect Ben, who took two bullets for you, and you act like your athleticism had anything to do with you walking in freedom today? How disrespectful. The story, don't you see that when we walk in our lives and try to think that our good works and the nice things that we do have anything to do with our acceptance to God, we disrespect the great sacrifice that was made for us when Christ hung from a tree. Not only does Tristan go into remission, Alfred goes into remission too. And I want to close with this story, and we'll be done here. There was about, or it was about 10 years ago or so, and uh, I was on a trip that was going down to uh, Mexico to dig a bunch of holes and do a service-related, uh, it was a service-related trip, and there's a big group from Medford going down, and, and there's some people already down there, and so we jumped on the bus, and we went down there, and when I got there, I was getting off the bus, unloading, and I saw, oh, there's some people I already know here, and it was a, it was a friend of mine that I, he had been, I, he'd been in church forever, I just knew who he was, and so I just walked up to him, and I said, hey, how's it going, man, how are you? And he goes, not, not good, and I was like, kind of took me off guard because we get so used to just, hey, how's it going? Good, good, no matter what's going on. And he, but he was honest. He goes, I'm not doing good, man. And I was like, okay, what, um, what's going on? What, <laughs> what's, what's the matter? And, and he goes, uh, I think I lost my salvation. And I go, whoa, <laughs> you know, I'm, a, I'm not a pastor. <laughs> I don't, you know, but okay, tell me, tell me what's going on. You know, help unpack this. I, you know, I'll see if I can help you if I can. And, and he goes, you know, I just did something I shouldn't do. I was like, okay. And he goes, there's a girl down here, and, we, uh, and I just knew I wasn't supposed to date her, but the chemistry, like we got along, and, and it's, it, the conversation just flowed, and, and I, nobody needed to tell me. I just knew I wasn't supposed to date her, and, and I dated her anyway. And I said, you dated a girl? And, <laughs> and I was like, I, that was, and it kind of stopped there, and I was like, all right, I don't, you know, I'm not trying to dig too deep, but if I'm going to help you at all, you have to unpack this a little more. And he goes, I just knew I wasn't supposed to do it. And, and I said, so what happened? And he goes, well, the next day I broke up with her. And I'm like, and that's it? End of story? End of story. And he goes, but Jeremy, I just, I just knew I wasn't supposed to do it, and I did it anyway. And you could see his countenance was just heavy. He had thought that he disobeyed, so he lost his salvation. And, and I said, What's, what are the pastors down here and stuff saying? And, they, and he said, you know, they all tell me not to worry about it. Relax. I'm fine. Yeah, I'll be good. You know, you're saved and all this stuff. And I remember getting really frustrated because something hit me in that moment. And I looked at him and I, was, I said, buddy, if when you do bad things, you feel like you've lost your salvation, what was your salvation built on in the first place? He'd been in church his entire life. He'd heard all the Bible studies that anyone could hear, and he couldn't imagine an acceptance, a salvation that was built on anything other than his own good works. And I said, in so many words, 
maybe you need to receive the unconditional loving acceptance of a father. And I remember we were standing there and I could see it in his eyes. The penny didn't drop. He could not imagine it. What I was saying was completely foreign to him and and, and he just couldn't get it. And I hope he, I mean, he's still around church. I hope he gets it and I hope he has. I mean, that was 10 years ago. But isn't that so like us? We wanna hold on to Alfred so bad. Our hope and our acceptance is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I love the songs that we sang at the beginning of the service because they just spoke to that. It is grace. It is an unconditional loving acceptance of the Father. Will you deny so great a gift? So Father, as we go back into our time of of worship, Lord, we just pray that... We would, you would help us and move us to analyze our hearts and analyze our thoughts and see, Lord, if there be any Tristan-like attitudes, any Alfred-like attitudes, any younger brother and older brother type mentalities. Lord, may we understand the great sacrifice that was made so that we can have acceptance in you. May we stop trying to think that our good works have anything to do with it. May we stop disrespecting you so often. And may we simply receive the good news of Jesus Christ, that the debts have been paid and the honors and the righteousness have been pinned to our chest. We pray these things in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.